It's good to be back. I've uh, enjoyed being with you all, and I know that uh, I'm only going to be here a couple more weeks uh, through the first uh, Sunday of December, which is uh, Thanksgiving weekend, but uh, it's been great. It's wonderful to hear uh, good news uh, such as uh, we have uh, about Steve. I was really impressed with him because he called me and he wanted to be able to fit what he said last week into the series of messages that I'm preaching. So I was kind of impressed with that myself. It also worked out for me because I spent a couple of nights, or a couple of days rather, in the hospital. Uh, How many of you would rather be here than in the best hospital in Lakeland? Yeah, Yeah, well, anyway, I spent a couple of days in the hospital this week uh, getting an ablation. I don't know whether you know what, what that one of those is, but I have a irregular heartbeat, and they kind of straightened that out. Uh, But I did hear about one of the older members of the church here who was walking down the street, uh, an older man with a beautiful woman on his arm. And his doctor here in Lakeland went up to him and said, Joe, I'm a little concerned. You know your health problems. And here you are with this beautiful young woman what's going on? And he looked at the doctor and he said, I'm just doing what you told me to do. You said to go get a hot mama and be cheerful. The doctor said, no, I said you got a heart murmur, be careful. Well, I didn't have a heart murmur, but hopefully they got that straightened out. We're in a series of messages entitled, Simple, The Christian Life Doesn't Have to Be Complicated. Two weeks ago, we talked about assurance, A, assurance of salvation. We can be assured of our salvation because we have the oxygen of the Holy Spirit, we have the birth certificate of the Word of God, and we bear the family likeness. Last week, you heard a great message on baptism. I can't think of a clearer example and a more simple example of conversion and baptism than the Ethiopian eunuch. And then today we're going to talk about the church, keeping the church simple. I heard a story about the plight of a foreign exchange student who had recently come to America. He went to one of his professors for advice on how to order food in American restaurants. Since he didn't speak English fluently and he was still learning about our culture, the professor suggested that he just go into the restaurant, sit down, and order a hamburger, fries, and a Coke. Well, he did that. Every time he went into a restaurant, it was hamburger, fries, Coke. Well, after two months, he was sick of having just a hamburger and fries and a Coke And so he went back to his professor and he shared his problem. And the professor said, do you like breakfast? When the student said yes, he told the student to try ordering eggs, toast, and juice. Well, the next morning, sitting in the restaurant, he ordered eggs, toast, and juice. Great, the waitress replied. She wrote it down. And then she asked, how would you like your eggs? Fried, poached, over easy, firm, scramble, sunny side up. And what about your toast? Wheat, white, rye, 
Would you like a muffin, bagel, breakfast roll? And what about juice? Orange, grapefruit, lemon, grapefruit, tomato? The student looked at her and said, take a hamburger, fries, and a Coke. (laughs) Don't you wish sometimes that life could be reduced to a hamburger, fries, and Coke? It seems so complicated sometimes. And we can make church very complicated, certainly for the outsider. Uh, What we do in participating in the communion service itself has to be kind of confusing for a person just walking off the street who had never been in a church before. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 12 chapter uses the analogy of the human body to show God's orderly arrangement of his people. And he says three things in this uh, 1 Corinthians, the 12th chapter. He says, every person is a part. Notice in verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ and each one of you is a part of it. Verse 27. And then Paul also says, every person has a partner. Verse 26 says, if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. You see, that's part of the fellowship of the church. We rejoice with those who rejoice, and we're to weep with those who weep. When one part of the church suffers, we all suffer in a way. When one part of your body suffers, because the church is a body, it affects other parts of the body. Let me tell you, I had that ablation Tuesday, and about five hours after it, my right eye started hurting. I thought I had something in my right eye. How could I get something in my right eye laying still in a bed? I told the nurse, I've got something in my eye. It hurts. And I laid there for three hours, and they finally told me that something in the procedure uh, caused my right eye to be dry, And so I had a very dry eye, and until they put some drops in it. But for those three hours, during that period of time, when my eye hurt, guess what else hurt? Everything else in your body hurts when one part of it hurts. That's just the way it works, isn't it? Every part also has a purpose. Verse 18 of this text says, But in fact, God has arranged the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. So every person is a part. Every person has a partner. Every part has a purpose. And just as churches are remarkably complicated, the body is a remarkably complicated organism. No other group or association on earth contains such a wide variety of people. When I got ready to retire after 30 years in the church, I worked together with the guy that was going to follow me for a month so that he would meet uh, people and get acquainted and and, uh, fit in well. And I made a remark to him because we had some strange people in the church in Kissimmee. And Jim Book, who is the preacher over at Kissimmee now, said to me something that I really hadn't thought about even though I should have, 
I hadn't thought about this. He said, well, the church is an organization that takes everybody. And when you take everybody, you're going to end up with a lot of strange people. Churches are remarkably complicated. We have an ethnic mix. Certainly in the churches in Florida, we enjoy an ethnic mix that is missed in most churches in other areas of the United States. The age mix, age mix, enables both young and old to interact in the church. When my children were very small, every Sunday they rubbed elbows with fun kids their own age, hardworking middle-aged adults, cool grandmothers. Where? In the church. No one can measure the impact of the young woman who teaches the first grade Sunday school class or the long married couple who take newlyweds under their wing or the senior citizen who prays faithfully for the church. Younger people. Older men and women provide indispensable role models for the young. And the young offer priceless encouragement and honor for the old. My little three-year-old grandson looks forward every Sunday to church in Kissimmee. He's actually going to be here at the later service today. And he's going to miss his Sunday school teacher. Because he looks forward every Sunday to seeing Mr. Vaughn and Mr. Mary who teach his Sunday school class. Now, Mr. Vaughn and Mr. Mary are actually married to each other. But that's what he calls them. Mr. Vaughn and Mr. Mary. He has no idea that Mr. Vaughn and Mr. Mary, uh, that Mr. Vaughn is probably in his mid to late 70s. She is too. That Mr. Vaughn is the chairman of the elders in the Kissimmee Church. Or that Mr. Vaughn and Mr. Mary own a really nice manufacturing company in Orlando. And they are very wealthy individuals. He has no idea about any of that. But he looks forward every Sunday to being with Mr. Vaughn. And Mr. Mary. The maturity mix blends new believers with more experience in the faith. New believers infuse the church with enthusiasm, fresh ideas, insightful questions. And they provide direct pipelines for taking the gospel to the unsaved in the community. Mature Christians provide needed stability, seasoned counsel, and models of godly living. Perhaps the most remarkable is the gift mix found in the body of Christ. In Romans, the 12th chapter, verse 10, the Apostle Paul writes, We have different gifts according to the grace given to us. Bob and Joan Higgins are members of the church here. Some of you probably know them. They've been married for, I think, 62 years, they told me. But before they came here to church, they were in the church that I served in Kissimmee. For the last 10 years or so of my ministry in Kissimmee, I could look forward to seeing uh, Joan and Bob in church each week. But I learned something about Bob. I knew that he was from Elwood City, Pennsylvania. So I was talking one day to Nick Tomio, who taught youth ministry at uh, uh, Cincinnati Christian Seminary. And I knew that Nick also was from Elwood City, Pennsylvania. And so I told Nick, I got a guy in my church, Bob Higgins. Do you know him? He said, Bob Higgins? Bob Higgins was the fastest man I ever met. He played on our church softball team when I was growing up in Elwood City. And he was, now, Joan probably thinks he was fast too when he started dating her. But 
nonetheless, it's lasted 62 years. Elwood City, Pennsylvania Church sent scads of young people to Cincinnati Bible College and Seminary. And a lot of those were influenced by people like Bob Higgins, who faithfully served in the church as a leader in youth ministry and as a leader in the church. It's important to have those gifts. Clearly, churches are complicated, but they don't have to be over-complicated. It is man who authors confusion and weighs down the body of Christ with outmoded traditions, unnecessary programs, unhelpful busyness. It is man who allows different opinions or different gifts to divide and detour the church. So I want to encourage you to allow your minister, when he comes, to streamline the church. Because as time goes on, we add programs to the church that sometimes don't have anything to do with the purpose of the church. And the more programs that you have that don't fit into the purpose of the church, the slower the church will drag. So allow your new minister to streamline the church. When I hear of churches battling over bylaws or quarreling over carpet colors, I remember reading about the major league Baseball pitcher who frustrated his manager and fans because he overanalyzed every pitch. He worried about every movement of his body as he threw the ball. One of his frustrated teammates complained his problem is that he spends too much time fretting over things that don't matter. He'll be a great pitcher, he said, if he will just learn to stand on the mound and throw the ball. Pitching is simpler than he thinks. Well, several years ago, Tom Rayner wrote a book entitled Simple Church. And that is the principle of the book. Simplifying the church. The church is a lot more complex than it needs to be. Well, today I want to talk to you about keeping the church simple. The word church is mentioned 110 times in the New Testament. But the first time the word church is mentioned was when Jesus mentioned it in Matthew 16, 18, and 19. The word church comes from the word ekklesia. Ek meaning out of, and kaleo, part of the last part of that word, meaning called. The church is called out, called out of the world to be the church. The roots of the church go all the way back 2,000 years ago to when Jesus Christ first mentioned that term. When Jesus first mentioned it, the church was not in existence yet. He said, I will build my church. Wayne Smith, a popular preacher of years past, told about a man who went to the dentist to have a tooth removed. But the difficulty was that when the dentist tried to remove the tooth with his pliers, the man would clamp down his teeth on the pliers, and the dentist could not pull the tooth. So in desperation, the dentist told his female assistant, if he bites down on these pliers one more time, 
I want you to reach behind the chair and I want you to pinch his bottom side with your long fingernails. And then he'll be shocked, he'll open his mouth, and I'll pull the tooth. Well, the man did as they assumed he would. And she did as she was told by the dentist. She pinched his bottom side strongly as she could. He opened his mouth, and the dentist pulled the tooth. The dentist said, see, that wasn't that bad, was it? The man said, no, it wasn't. But I had no idea the roots went that deep. (laughs) Well, the roots of the church go that deep. All the way back to Jesus. All the way back to that time when he was at Caesarea Philippi. And his disciples and he were discussing his identity. And Jesus said to them, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now I want you in this passage of scripture to notice that Jesus makes three statements about the church. Number one, the church has a divine origin. The church is not like just any other organization on earth. The Elks, the Kiwanis, the Rotary Club, we're not really a club. The church has a divine origin. Jesus said, I will build my church. The church is his church. When Steve comes, it won't be his church, it'll be his church. It's not my church. It's not the elders' church. And it's not your church. You've got a great staff of ministers. But when you feel that the church has to meet with regard to the programs, the things that you think it ought to be, that the songs that are sung ought to be the songs that you want sung, the church ceases to be his church and it becomes your church and that's not what it's supposed to be the church is a divine institution in the new testament period of time there was a serious problem in the church at corinth they had a serious problem with division immorality corruption gossip. In 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul writes them a letter. In the third chapter, verse 5, the Apostle Paul says, what after all is Apollos? He's talking about division in the church. And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe. As the Lord has assigned to each his task, I planted the seed. Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. Florida and Southern California are well known for their beaches, and these beaches popularized the music of the Beach Boys 
beach party movies, and of course surfing. And although the surfing fad has evolved into skateboarding for most of the country, who have no surf, the real sport is still popular in Florida and California. Some schools even offer physical education courses in surfing. And if you take a class on surfing, you'll be taught everything you need to know about surfing, how to choose the right equipment, how to use it properly, how to recognize a surfable wave, how to catch a wave and ride it as long as possible, and most important of all, how to know how to get off a wave without wiping out. But you'll never find a course that teaches how to build a wave. Surfing is the art of riding the waves that God builds. God makes the waves. Surfers just ride them. No surfer tries to create a wave. He can't do it. If the waves aren't there, what does a surfer do? He goes home. He doesn't surf that day. On the other hand, when a surfer sees a good wave, they, they make the most of it. Even if it means surfing in the middle of a storm. Now, a lot of books and conferences on church growth fall into the category, how to build a wave. They try to manufacture the wave of God's Spirit using gimmicks, programs, marketing techniques to create growth. But growth cannot be produced by man. Only God makes things grow. Only God creates waves. Paul said, I planted the seed. Apollos watered it, but God makes it grow. The church has a divine origin. But second, the church also has an everlasting impact. An everlasting impact. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now, some of your Bibles will say the gates of hell. The King James does. Hell is a mistranslation of that word. Hades is actually the abode of the dead. And Jesus is talking about death. But the word gates kind of throws a little curveball. Gates of death will not prevail against the church. We've got to think about what gates were used for in ancient times. In ancient times, what were gates in a city used for? Well, they were used to keep people out, keep bad people out, keep other armies out. They were a defensive weapon. The gates equaled defense for a city. So Jesus says the gates of Hades, the gates of death, will not prevail against the church. We sometimes have the picture of the church being over here hovering in the corner and all hell, all, the, all of death and hell battering the church as enemies. That's not the picture. Because Jesus said the gates of death will not prevail against the church. And gates were a defensive weapon. 
So if the gates of Hades, the gates of death are on the defense, what is the church? It's on the offense, right? And we used to sing songs about that, didn't we? We're marching to Zion. Onward, Christian soldiers. I'm in the Lord's army. The battle hymn of the republic. And that's true. The church has an everlasting impact. Death will not prevail against Jesus' church. Every time a person becomes a Christian, one is taken out of the death column and put in the life column. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Third, the church has ever-expanding influence. Jesus said, I will build my church. And Jesus began to build his church through the apostles and through his followers. But Jesus continues to build his church today. In fact, I think that's the reason why the book of Acts that tells the history of the church, the early church, ends abruptly. In the New American Standard Version of the Bible, the last word in the book of Acts is the word unhindered. I like that. The last word in the book of Acts, Paul is in prison in Rome, but he has a certain amount of freedom. The church is growing, and the book of Acts ends sort of abruptly. It's because we're writing chapters of the book of Acts continually through the generations, even until now. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 19, I will give you, Peter, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Peter used those keys less than two months after Jesus died and came back from the dead. On the day of Pentecost, before Jesus ascended, just a few days, he said to his disciples, I will... You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That power came on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2. Peter preached. And in Acts 2, verse 36, Peter concludes his message by saying, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. You'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children. For all who are far off, that includes us. For all whom the Lord our God will call. Those who accepted his message that day were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. A few years ago, I was watching Fox News Channel on a Thursday night. It happened to be the National Day of Prayer. The National Day of Prayer, the first Thursday of May. And it was late in the evening, and I watched, actually, Fox had put a African-American church service from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. 
on the air. An African-American preacher by the name of Keith Reed was preaching. And he said three things that I thought, these are so good. I'm going to try to remember those. Always have. He said, first of all, I want you to know that the church has arriving power. Arriving power. In the wake of any emergency, the church responds. The government comes, but the church makes a difference. And whether it's a hurricane like Katrina, a flood, or tornado, 9-11, the church has arriving power. And then he secondly said, the church also has surviving power. Jesus said the gates of death will not prevail against the church. Now Satan has had three primary weapons against the church. The first weapon that Satan has used to destroy the church was persecution. Still uses it today. His first and crudest tactic was physical force. He tried to crush the early church with physical violence. But, according to Acts, the 8th chapter, verse 4, the Bible says that those who had been scattered, when the church scattered as a part of the persecution that occurred, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. And actually, that persecution Help grow the church. Second, corruption. His second and more subtle tactic was moral compromise. Having failed to destroy the church from the outside, he tried to corrupt it from the inside through the deceit of Ananias and Sapphira. Remember them? They lied. They lied, both of them did, about what they were giving to the church. And they were both struck dead, not for a giving problem. They were struck dead for deceit and corruption and uh, trying to, uh, hypocrisy, really. And the very next verse, after they were struck dead, Ananias and Sapphira. The Bible says great fear seized the whole church. Two verses later, it says no one dared join them. Well, that could stop the church in its tracks. But then the very next verse says more and more men and women believed and became part of the church. And the church continued to grow. The third tactic of Satan is distraction. Persecution corruption and distraction and Satan tried to deflect the apostles from their priority in Acts the sixth chapter of preaching and prayer members of the church complained that their needs were not being met remember that in Acts the sixth chapter where the widows complained that their needs were not being met and that was solved basically by every member ministry men were appointed to serve and minister sometimes we think of them as the first deacons in the church but he has neither changed his strategy nor his tactics he is still in the same old rut today but the church has surviving power and third the church has thriving power I like that black preachers sometimes rhyme things The church has arriving power. The church has surviving power. The church has thriving power. 
all the way back in the book of Isaiah, the 55th chapter, God promises. He says, my word will not return to me void. He then went on to say, it will accomplish what I sent it to do. It will succeed. And the church has continued to arrive, continued to survive, and continued to thrive. I read about a woman who was teaching vacation Bible school and her class was interrupted by a new student who entered the room. Little boy had one arm missing. She was caught off guard. She didn't have time to remind the children in her class to be very patient with the little boy and not embarrass him by saying something about his missing arm. She would have cautioned them to be sensitive. And at the, As the time came to a close, she asked her class to join in their usual closing ceremony. She said, let's make our churches. And putting her hands together, she said, here's the church and here's the steeple. Open it up and, you know, this. And then it struck her. The very thing that she wanted to prohibit her children from doing, she herself had done by embarrassing that little boy. And as she stood speechless, the girl sitting next to little Thomas put her right hand against his left hand. And she said, Thomas, let's make our church together. God is calling this church as a new preacher arrives to build this church together. Let's stand together and let's pray.